Plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. So each week we like to start the episode with, you know, a little connector, this something to tease yeah. the listener about the guest or the film or TV show that we're talking about. So this week, the little teaser is delicate materials. Okay, I see where you're going. Like mm, this. Must handle with care. Mm, where's this going? <laughs> I would say in doing this podcast, perhaps one might say I have to work oh, with delicate Fran, materials. Every week. It's every week. Every <laughs> single that, week. To be fair, this week it's actually not about that because we're talking about pottery. We are talking about <laughs> pottery with The Colour Room starring Phoebe Denever and David Morrissey, who are our guests this week. They are. And you will know Phoebe, of course, from starring in Bridgerton, oh which goodness. was a series that literally took the world by storm. She really is a sort of a star that's on the rise. We've had Luke Evans and Brian Cox, revered actors, and David Morrissey isn't any different either. The Governor. Mm. The Walking Dead. That Great is big. Great series. Got three series of Britannia, which you can find on now. And even like Singapore Grip, it was a great series. So he's done a lot. Yeah, and both Phoebe and David are starring in a new film that's available to watch on now called The Colour Room from the 12th of November. And this is a true story. And it follows Clarice Cliff, who is this innovative ceramics designer in the early 20th century. Yeah, and just to be clear, this is not the great pottery throwdown. That nor it is not. is it that scene from Ghost with Patrick Swayze and a bit of Unchained Melody. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not Unchained Melody. <laughs> but it is in many ways a story of empowerment about how Clarice Cliff comes into this environment, a male-dominated environment in the 1920s and 1930s, and she turns up the script. She sees an opportunity as a creative, an entrepreneur, and everything changes. Yeah, it's definitely all about how she's challenging the sort of conventional perceptions of women in the industry at the time. And it's got a lot of that around sort of female galvanisation and empowerment. And she's pretty shrewd as well. She's a smart cookie. She knew what she was doing. And we know that David Morrissey is known for being very thorough with his background research around the characters that he plays. Yeah, and that's something that I think for both of them in this film. I mean, it's Phoebe's first film as well. Mm. But they really looked into the characters, Clarice Cliff's history as well, um, which is only going to grow now. Yes, we were really interested to delve into that in a bit more detail, as well as, of course, ask them all about their favourite plot twists, being the Plot Twist podcast. (laughs) So we'll hand over to them. It's Phoebe Denever and David Morrissey on Plot Twist. Enjoy. It's lovely to see you both. Before we kick off, you're both looking amazing. Very dapper, very smart. Thank you. Um, We're both suited and booted. <laughs> or sandaled. Yeah. Suited with some sandals. Um, I usually like to kick off with a bit of trivia. 
basically because I want to just, I want to be friends. I want to try and find something. But Fran has, you've put me to the post actually. Yeah, I snuck in this week because Phoebe, I was watching an interview where you were talking about your lockdown fix being Hamilton. And I just couldn't come and meet you and not mention that because (laughs) like you, every day. It, and everyone's saying it's a lockdown thing, and I'm like, it's a lockdown thing. You're obsessed, you're obsessed, Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mention that because I'm going to see the actual stage production for the first time in two weeks, and I'm so excited about it because I've only ever sort of watched it on TV a million times and <laughs> I'm sang and danced around the kitchen to the playlist. So to actually get to see it live, I'm so excited. Do you think you'll be that person who will be singing along out loud to oh, every song? Yeah, or, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's always one. Yeah, yeah I'm, particularly I'm it's, it's satisfied as the one that really get. I'll be bawling. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm a um, you'll be back. Like, that's a real, oh. like, yeah, the king singing around the kitchen, so like, giving it my all. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you two are my best pals, basically. <laughs> You're going to go see Hamilton later, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, David, any sort of uh, lockdown sort of obsessions or fixes that, or well, hobbies? I, yeah, I mean, I just sort of did a lot of box sets. I did, we did a film club. My two sons and I did a film club. But to stop us arguing what we did, we'd, we'd write down a film on a piece of paper and we'd fold it up. And then we'd put all the papers out on the floor and then we'd let the dog in and the dog would choose what oh, film we were going to think. I that love that. That's and great. can I say, if you put a little bit of Marmite on your on your paper, then yeah. you, you will always get chosen first. <laughs> hey, I'm just out of myself to my sons there on my uh, film technique. But yeah, so we watched lots of films. I did quite a bit of gardening and cooking and stuff like that yeah but uh, I was very fortunate because I've got like I live just by the heath in London so I have an outdoor space and stuff that was great Mm. it definitely helps well our first question that we like to ask our guests is the plot twist podcast so when we think of a plot twist it's all about something happening that you didn't see coming or unexpected twist or turns so David we'll start with you what would you say in your career your life to date has been the most unexpected plot twist that's happened to you so, you know, I've got many, really, but I went, a friend of mine moved to L.A., and he moved there with his family. He's my best friend, and I just went over to sort of see him uh, for about a week. And whilst I was there, my agent in London said, oh, why don't you go and see this manager? I said, okay. I didn't have a manager at the time, so I went and see this manager. And by the end of that week, I had the, the job in The Walking Dead. I'd got it. So he said to me, listen, they're, they're looking for this new guy and the thing. So I said, oh, okay. You know, I knew the show a bit, but, and then by the end of the week, they'd offer me this job. And that was such a lie. So then I had to come back and go, so, uh, say to my wife, you know, I've got this job. So that was really a real change for me to suddenly be on that show. And it was very unexpected how I got it. So, but I think as an actor, those things happen all the time. They're just Mm. so left field, things you're not expecting. So I've learned to relax on that sort of wanting to get stuff happening quickly because it just tends to happen if you kick back a bit. The governor, what a character. Yeah. Just before we come to your plot twist, Phoebe, um, you're, you're known for your meticulous preparation, David, mm-hmm. and it was quite something with The Walking Dead, wasn't it? Yeah. That you, you were looking at ancient leaders, weren't you, and political leaders yeah. to try and find the sort of yeah. that psychopathic sort of... Not just psychopathic, but just the idea of how uh, leadership works, manipulation of crowds work, how sort of speeches work, that sort of um, time of crisis... I looked mm. at things like the Black Death here and, you know, the sort of the plague in Europe and how that affected the Spanish flu and stuff like that and how that affected suddenly people who were like middle management or lower down even sort of were raised to positions of power and how they dealt with that, sometimes wonderfully, sometimes not. So 
all those things. I, I've, I am a, it's sort of, I do let my work get into my inner geek really and I'm able to, and that was the big, so the Black Death was what I, <laughs> I read a lot about the Black Death <laughs> before I did The Walking Dead, yeah. Actors are basically historians, aren't they, in some ways? Yeah. And what about you, Phoebe? What would you say your biggest plot twist moment? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but it's a similar story with Bridgerton, really, because I was, I sort of moved to L.A. because I had a visa from doing a show called Younger and thought, you know, I'm young, I'm in my 20s, I may as well use it, and went mm. to L.A. And, you know, it's, L.A. can be sort of strange if you're, you're not, not working, really. So mm. it was a few months of figuring out where I was in that world. And then a lot, sort of lots of rejection and getting really close to things and it not working out. And, you know, I called my parents and I was like, I'm coming home, I'm gonna come home. Really? And then my manager rang me and said, don't delay your flight, move it back. And I was like, why? And she was like, cause you know, you've got, I, I auditioned for, I did put myself on tape for Bridget in January and this was probably like April, May time that they called me back and, and suddenly I was in a room with, with reggae and, and Shonda and, and Julianne, our director, and, and it happened so quickly. It was like within the space of a week, I was suddenly being flown out to, uh, to move all my things back to <laughs> London and, and start Bridgerton. And weirdly, since then, life has just been one plot twist after another because of course we wrapped Bridgerton and literally a week later, it was COVID. I mean, like, literally, yeah. it was like lockdown a week later. So it feels like the last few years. <laughs> started a knock-on effect of lots of... Plot twists. Yeah, but I guess that's life. Do you ever look back on moments like that and just think, you know, imagine that hadn't happened and where might sliding you've ended moments. up, those sliding door moments? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I also think being in LA, weirdly, because obviously all the cast really are Brits and most of the cast apart from me and reggae, were cast in England. But I do think being in LA and, and being in the room with Chandra and reggae was a huge part of me being able to get that job. Mm. So, yeah, it is funny. Be right place, right time, I guess. Mm. Did either of you have any idea when you're taking on the project that, I mean, both of them have enormous fan bases, and obviously the comic books as well. Um, you know, when you're starting off, you're on set for the first time and you complete that first scene, did you then think that it would go on to be as successful and as talked about as they as well, It was happened? different for me because I was entering a show that was already established. I went into the third season of The Walking Dead. Also, so it was set up. Yeah. Mm. Um, and also Andy Lincoln, who was a good mate of mine, he was the lead in it. So I was able to sort mm. of talk to him about how it worked and, you know, how it was put together and he was... He assured me that, you know, they were great people who were running it. And Had you watched it? Yeah, I'd watched it, yeah. I mean, I, I came to the show as a fan uh, because not only Andrew Lincoln, but uh, Lenny James was also yeah, in, in, the, in the first season. So, you know, I had mates in it. And I had to say that when I knew what the show was, I thought, oh, I'm not going to get this. And then I watched it and it just, I just thought it was fantastic. Oh. So I wanted to join. And it did, be, you know, it be, went huge mm. so i that was a surprise about how huge it went but um it's a really well-run show so it wasn't i should presume with bridgerton it was you were on a blank page really you didn't know what was it was going to be like and how enormous it was going to be whereas i was surprised by how big it was but it was already a big show when i entered it do you think there's an added pressure going into that being a fan and knowing it's got such a like a built fan base already 
You know, all those things, uh, the pressures and stuff like that, they happen when you're in your hotel room before you start or when you're at home thinking, oh, I'm taking off of my planes in two weeks' time and you start getting pressure. The minute you walk on set nine times mm. out of ten, that just all goes away. Everybody wants you to be good. Everybody wants you to be in the cast. There's no competition in that way, or certainly there wasn't on our show. It was a very collaborative sort of place to be. And once you get that first morning over with, mm. you're sort of rolling then. And uh, so all my anxiety and all my sort of worry was the night before. That night before your first day mm. is, that's just first ridiculous. Yeah, that's <laughs> sort of walking around the hotel, what have I done? How am I going to do it? <laughs> oh, my God. You know. yeah. so, but, but once you get going, you're fine. Yeah, once you're in it, you sort of just tap straight into survival oh, mode then, yeah. don't you? It's like... <laughs> and also I... you, you're worrying that you're going to have to do the whole... 10 episodes on the first morning and you forget that you just have to do the first scene you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. we're own worst enemies really aren't we with our own brains like yeah. we like you say you build it up something so much in advance and you get and you're like oh we're all just yeah. people who want to do a good job so actually it's fine yeah well we were going to talk about fear actually because watching the film last night Clarice is this sort of she's a trailblazer in many ways and she seems fearless at times as well um, but our own relationship with fear we talk about it all the time Fran it's sort of it's fascinating how you approach it as actors, what is what is the the most fearful thing? Failing. Failing. I mean, I don't even know what that is. Like, what is failing? Mm. Like, I've never really watched a performance as an actor and thought, mm. well, you, you failed on that performance. <laughs> because, so I think as long as I've sort of learned, as long as you're making bold choices and they're, you know, you're sort of semi-thinking outside the box, mm. then you're always going to win. Because you're just, you're doing something different anyway. And I think once you sort of get past the fear, that's when exciting things tend to happen. But yeah, again, like touching on what David was saying, like the fear doesn't usually come, you know, when you're, the moment between action and take is like the freest moment ever as an actor. It's like meditation, you know, you're just mm. in the scene and in the moment. So that's not the scary bit. The scary bit is all the bit before before that. Oh, it's always a build-up, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But fear is good. I mean, fear is great, you know, because I'd be very worried if I wasn't fearful or nervous because it means I don't care. Mm. So I only get frightened and nervous because I care about what, what, what I'm doing. So if I suddenly went, oh, it's fine, I'm not nervous, I don't care, I'm just going to walk <laughs> up and do it, then I'd start to get worried. Mm. Um, and I like the fear. I mean, obviously, the fear can tip over into a nervousness which is incapacitating, and that you've got to be careful about that. But I like the frisson. I like the butterflies. I like the, you know, when you're in the theatre, you know, sometimes you get very fearful in the first couple of weeks, and that sort of goes away. So you have to slightly manufacture that because it, it is an adrenaline thing. Mm. And I like that. And, it, you know, it's that thing of feel the fear and do it anyway. You know, yeah. it is that stuff. It's, it's, it's a good thing. The one thing for me, I think, because I am an interpretive person rather than a, you know, a, a conceptual person, I'm not an artist or an author, I need to be employed to go to work. So my fear is that the phone stops ringing or nobody employs mm. me anymore because then I can't exercise my, my craft, really. Mm. So I, I worry about that, but I've never met an actor who's not worried about that. So yeah. that's okay. I'm not alone there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that little voice in your head that goes, you're only as good as your last yeah, job. Oh, no, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one that always gets me. <laughs> 
Has it, has it ever tipped over? I mean, we, we've spoken to comedians and they've had that one performance maybe at the very beginning of their career where it's been a real learning curve because it's they've, they've in their own mind it's bombed or something and invariably it hasn't. But, but you ne- that? you're never going to get anything worthwhile without falling on your face. You're just not. You're never going to get anywhere without crushing and burning. You're just not. Nothing that is worth it is the last I think about failure is not that there's no such thing, but you can't be frightened of it because you won't get out of your house if you don't do it, you know. Mm. So you've got to be able to... There's no artist that you see that you value that hasn't done something that has been ill-received or whatever, and that's the most precious time, really. You can only create the great stuff by getting involved in the in, in the stuff that other people mightn't appreciate. And we know, you know, we're here today to talk about Clarice Cliff, you know, we're here. You know that there are times when somebody has been rejected by the world and they are fantastic people, they are fantastic artists, but the world just isn't ready to see them yet. So, you know, it's about my greatest lessons are the lessons when I've really just ran into a wall or got things as far as the world is concerned, wrong or, you know, been ridiculed or whatever. They're, my, they're the best times for me creatively because they're the most learning. I haven't learned anything from the stuff I've done that has been easy and successful. I've only learned from the stuff that's really been, you know, hard lessons to learn. I think what struck us from the film with is that Clarice Cliff was just relentless. Like, no matter the setback, she just found a new solution, like a new way into the problem. Like you say, actually learnt from those experiences and just found the next way forward, which is actually really, like I say, the, the right way to view a setback in inverted commas. It's just how do I learn from it? Yeah, she almost wouldn't take no for an answer in, in many ways. And also that her, her way of seeing the world was so interesting to me because I don't see the world like she does. I mean, it's like she just finds an opportunity in everything. Mm. And I love that moment, and we've talked about it today, but just you know, right after she sort of feels like there's no hope and everything's failed and then two women come over and say, that looks nice. And she Mm. suddenly realises that she's selling to the wrong person. She needs to... This is about women. This is about changing the industry completely in in how it's being marketed and and sold and everything. She realises that you know, the patriarchy is very, is very ingrained in absolutely everything and, and therefore she needs to push the marketing in a different way. So, again, her failures and her falling on her face allowed her to sort of stand up again and, and push harder. And I think there's such an in- inspiring message in the film in, in that It's way. empowerment in a way, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That was the thing I, I think we, we discussed that we really enjoyed the most, actually, was that... Also, in an era where she shouldn't, it well, how it was defined, she shouldn't have almost been able to do those things mm-hmm. because there were constraints, there were obstacles in her way, and it. She found a creative solution, and she was then relentless with it. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I was re- we were reading that you obviously really drawn to the script from that sort of female empowerment and that bringing together that community of women. But from what we understand, it's also sort of a behind the scenes from the production side. It's got that sort of similar women-led community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, that really drew me the fact that you know, female producers and female director and writer. And, you know, it was great to sort of be working alongside alongside women and sort of all that. I've never had that experience before in that way, ever. So that was really, really nice because we were all coming at the story from the same angle, which was like, let's tell this female-led story 
Um, and that was, yeah, that was a really lovely aspect of working on the film as well. There's always a support act behind a creative force like Clarice. Uh, David, you've played some interesting characters. You've played, uh, <laughs> you've played uh, a Nazi, for, you know, you've yeah. played uh, you know, a, not a very pleasant man in the yeah. Singapore grip. Um, but yeah. this character, he seems like he's a, you, you go for a beer with him and he was a nice support act. Yeah, he is. He's a, I, I mean, he's an amalgamation of two characters. There's a guy called John Butler and Fred Ridgway, which is the character I play. Yeah, and he was, you know, he was very well respected in that field. He was a man who's sort of... He'd invented this form of glazing uh, called oriflamme or a, a type of oriflamme, which was different, which was a, a, a brighter glaze. And he was, you know, in, even in the world that he inhabits, he was famous, you know, people knew him and respected him. But he wasn't pushy. He wasn't someone who was sort of, you know, uh, blowing his own trumpet in that way. But it was also important for me that he wasn't someone in the script or in the in, in, in the story that was seen as a teacher or a mentor to her at all, because what he was was someone who just recognized her genius. Mm. He it was all she was fully formed when she walked through the door. And I think what he does is maybe give her the space to create that. But he's also cautious about he's frightened of her, you know, he's frightened of her talent because you know, he's someone who knows, which happens in the film, that if the collection that she presents doesn't sell, people will lose their job. Mm. And he's very aware in his own community what that means to families, that if they don't go to work, then they don't eat. You know, he knows that, and, he's, and he feels responsible for that. So even though he supports her talent, he's he thinks she's too ahead of her time, really. And when he tells her to stop... He couldn't be more delighted that she doesn't listen to. <laughs> yes, you know you can see that later on. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. actually she is punk rock. That's what she is. She's punk rock mm. coming in and going. The rule book is out the window. This is what we do. She goes out. She takes her product to her customers rather than goes to a middleman. There's, she mm. does experiences in these big shops. She gets people in and does workshops and salons where people are doing the art themselves. She's got this team of women who are just infectious in what they're doing. And that, I think, is very much the model of how we sell things to the public mm. today. You know, And she came up with that. She used celebrity endorsement for the first time. She got actors and actresses to sort of come pose with the work. So one of the things we were talking about today is we hope that her genius is there to be recognised, but, you know, in the ceramic world, but in the wider public, mm. we get to recognise this truly remarkable woman from our history. And a bit of an underdog in some ways as well, I suppose. Um, visually, as you go through the film, even the, the, the colour itself of the film, it's quite almost a bit grey, it's a bit dull, and as, mm. you, as our ideas manifest, suddenly you get more colour coming in. Vibrancy. That was a deliberate, I suppose, yeah. setup, right? Yeah, I suppose it was. I, I think... I mean, you see her eye for beauty from the get-go, you know, when she yes. sees the flower and she picks it and she's very aware of the beauty in everything, which mm. we had a lot of smoke machines and we don't necessarily <laughs> know what it was like to have the actual factories, but it's very polluted and dark and dim. Um, and Clarice really did see those little bits that a lot of people, I guess, miss in life, the, the colour. Um so we see that, I think, from the get-go and also in her clothes that she wears. You know, she's always sort of wearing a pop of colour, whether that's in her scarf or the jumpers, or we really wanted to add that element of, of Clarice being colourful. You know, mm. there was mm. soap. She had a real vibrant personality. And um, 
but yeah, I think as the film sort of goes on, you do, you definitely get more of that. And I think what's so brilliant about, you know, Claire and Denson, our DOP, the, the way they've sort of, the visuals of this film are very, you know, we really do see the colour in what was quite a bleak mm. atmosphere mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of the pottery. I like the little nods to the era itself, even in the script, I think it's like, um, you smell your father's woodbines. Yeah. She's got, you know, she's got the, she's putting the coat on, yeah. <laughs> little things like that. Yeah. Little things like that in the script, it comes out, like, I like that. It's a little mm -hmm. nod to, you know, the era itself. Mm -hmm. uh, key question, perhaps the most important question, how is your pottery and ceramics? Are, are, you, <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you talented here? Is what, did what we see come out in the film? Is that actually from you? New hobby. Yeah. I will say the most therapeutic part for me, I think the hardest part was the actual painting like the mm. paint because that it's so detailed intricate and the throwing i mean that's really different you have to have so much upper body strength to throw so the my favorite part was um <laughs> you know there's, there's a scene where clarice is is molding collie's wife's head and so we had sort of four different heads along the process so you know the first head was just clay mushed together, which I can do quite easily. Yeah, you've know, got that one sorted. I can do yeah. that. I'm really good at like putting Part clay on the, on the wooden, you know, stick, whatever. It, I'm sure there's a better name for that. I probably know. But I'm really good at that. Um, and yeah, and then, so the next one was sort of slightly shaped and you could see the head and then the next, and then the last one, which is like... Beautiful. I mean, stunning. I mean, the difference between the second to last one and the last one. Yeah. Quite astonishing. Because yeah. the second to last one is like, you know, sort of you see the features. So detailed. Then, yeah. And then the last one, I mean, the smooth, the complexion, mm. the little intricate details. But I really liked getting the finished product and then sort of, you know, smoothing bits over. That yeah. that was very therapeutic. <laughs> very satisfying. It felt like I'd yeah, yeah. done, done it. a good job. Yeah. 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 It was yeah. like, wow, I'm really good at this. Yeah, yeah. had that feeling. The stage before, you think, well, what's the wife going to think of this? This is not yeah. looking good. <laughs> this is awful. This, yeah, this is not looking great. Yeah, uh, give me the next one. <laughs> <laughs> one question I always think about. So obviously this is a, a true story. It's someone's life and their career. In terms of the process of when you receive a script, obviously when you receive a script for a character who has been invented from a writer's brain, you can add your own stamp, your own interpretation. What's the process that you go through when you're representing someone who is someone who has lived and has breathed and has history to make sure that you stay sort of true to that, that character. Yeah, well, I mean, um, Clarice is quite lovely in a lot of ways because she hasn't really been portrayed ever and we don't mm. really know quite who she is because obviously they didn't have film or, you know, there's not much about her. I got sent some documentaries, so what was quite interesting was there's one documentary where her paintresses talk about what it was like to work with her and they shed light on aspects of her personality that I wouldn't necessarily have really thought about. Like she was, she was very, you know, she had a real joyfulness about her, but she was very firm. And, you know, when she needed mm. to be, she really did take control of a room, whether it was with the paintresses or the men, you know, there's a real kind of authority, authority about, her. about her, which was really interesting. And then, yeah, just, just doing as much research as possible. Eventually you sort of, form a semi idea even things like you know going to Wedgwood the factory and I mean they they're hunched over for like 12 hours a day mm. you know do, do, 
and every day for 50 <laughs> years, you know, some of the pictures yeah. like, you know, this yeah, is my tough. life for the last 40 yeah. years. So obviously there would be a certain posture to that. There'd have to be, I, mean, I don't think they were quite aware of that, you mm. know, posture as we were. So just things like that. But it was quite, it was quite fun to get to play with what I knew about her and then build up from there and invent sort of this... Yeah, you can have a bit of also your character. own stamp on the character. Like you say, if she's not been represented yeah. in that way before. Yeah. How about you, David? Well, I think it, it depends. I think on the if you're playing someone that is in our public conscience now, like I played Gordon Brown once, and he's someone who's, you know, we know, we see him on the news. So you have to get an element of that correct more so because we know him. Uh, but with someone from the past, I think what you're doing is you're thinking about... Their social class, the what the what where they would have lived, how much money they would have had to live on, their diet, the tone mm. of the time, and then you're adding all that into it. So you're using much more of your imagination, and in that sense, you're trying to honour that character mm. and get the tone right and and get what they would have gone through, rather than the elements of not impersonation, but the elements of more like the way they sound, the way they walk, that we as the public would know, but. Ultimately, you're looking for to honour the character, whether it's modern or not. You know, I think what you don't want to do is see an impersonation of something that takes you away from the inner life of someone. Mm. Um, and that's important, I think. Yeah, it's beyond, it's beyond the actual impression itself, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, I've got to say, cracking beard, by the way. Thanks very yeah, much. No, really, <laughs> all my really own work it. and I have yeah, uh, I really all my, a little that. bit of wax in the old tash. <laughs> I like, like to play with that. I look like a the Hoxton cowboy, whatever they're called. But yeah, that was quite good. I quite like that. Yeah, it was quite funny seeing you without a beard. So. Right, yeah. yeah. I like, quite like that. David, yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and my little John Lennon glasses. Yeah. In terms of working together, did you guys cross paths during the audition process or is that. No, no, we met. We met, actually, I think we met when we went to the Wedgwood factory. Yes. So we all went, Matthew, Phoebe and I went, and uh, the producers and everybody. And that was a great day. That was a real, mm. the first day that we'd all met and stuff like that. But we did it during COVID. So, you know, we were all masked up, stuff like that. We had we had the coldest read-through I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> we had a read-through where we were so far apart that we couldn't hear each other, and also we had masks on and all the windows. it's window. difficult, isn't it, to, like, yeah. you, yeah. you underestimate how much and you read And all the windows mouths. were open in this, like, warehouse that we were Freezing cold. Freezing cold. I ended up, I ended up doing the read-through in my hoodie and my coat <laughs> yeah. and my mask. Nice and to meet everyone. Like, yeah. like, uh, so that was quite... And then filming was a bit like that as well, wasn't it? It was mm. sort of freezing cold. So, and we were tested all the time, obviously, but it was um, it was a challenge because of COVID, very much so, mm. yeah. But that's, we met first at the Wedgwood factory, yeah. So do you just build that sort of dynamic as you work the characters through together, really? Yeah, I mean, it was in the script, I suppose, really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but... it was in the script, but also, you know, Clara, as the director, creates the tone, right? Mm. And it, it felt like on set there was, we were able to discuss stuff. Yeah, Claire would come in and offer stuff of blocking and how to do stuff, but we all felt the freedom of being able to like, and in any scene you go, who's got the energy of the scene? And invariably, it was Clarice who had the energy in those scenes. Mm. The boardroom scenes were quite interesting because that felt like our energy, and then she comes in. So it was creating, <laughs> making sure the dynamics were yeah right between everyone and not too easy for 
uh, Clarice to come into that. You know, you, you had to give her opposition. Mm. But we, you know, that felt easy to do and, and sort of, um, as I say, that's dictated to by the, the director a lot of the time. Mm. We mentioned uh, Fred and obviously there's Collie as well, played by Matthew Goode, who's sort of a, a little bit of a love interest, not a Bridgeton level, but there's, you know, there's a, there's a little bit there. Um, and obviously they're supportive natures, aren't they? And we talk about a plot twist person, someone behind the scenes who's an unexpected force, you know, of support. Who, who might that be for you? No, I'm trying to think that's... I, I wasn't fully supported at school in the drama world of school. So I never really had, like, a, a mentor when I was younger, which I, mm. I, I really did miss, actually. But, you know, my grandma was always a champion. And I, I was cast... Actually, I wouldn't get cast in the, the plays at school, but then my English teacher, his name was Mr Westbrook said he was going to put on a production that wasn't to do with the drama department um, and he was going to put on Antigone. So at that opportunity, I think I was 16, um, and he said, you know, do you want to play Antigone? And I was like, all right. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, if I must. Yeah, you know, I was like, all right, oh, my off. God, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, <laughs> but even though I was working outside of school, I think to have that, I was playing, you know, a lot of, children or the mm. daughter of someone or, and had never experienced what it was like to firstly be on stage doing a play have that much dialogue to learn but also play such a powerful role at such a young age you know at 16 mm. so that was a real turning point in my life because I realized for the first time wow there's this I really want to do this I mean I just that feeling of being on stage and having so much power in your words. And I just never felt that before. And I will always appreciate him for giving me that opportunity because, it, yeah, it was a real turning point. Um, Kickstarted things. Yeah, yeah. What about you, David? So I, um, yeah, when I was 17, I was cast in a drama for Channel 4 called One Summer, which was about two scouse lads who ran away to Wales. And... Uh, it was me and another 17-year-old lad. We were the leads. Uh, but the adult uh, lead was an actor called James Hazeldean, who's sadly no longer with us. And he was, yeah, he was my person for a while, for a number of years, in fact, until he died. He was my sounding board. He was a Salford lad. He was a great actor. Um, and he was the person who I'd go to a lot and just say, what should I be doing? I'm feeling like I shouldn't... I, imposter syndrome, which I think a lot of actors suffer from, that was one of my things. And and he gave me a licence to be myself, really, and sort of made me brave and stuff. So he was my... For, for many, many years, he was the person I would go to to sort of, you know, just run ideas by or talk about my insecurities and, and stuff. And uh, that was invaluable for me. So, yeah, it would be James, really, yeah. That's really lovely. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about, um, obviously, this comes out 12th November. Then what's coming next? What's on the horizon? Because, you know, post-Bridgerton and obviously, I mean, you've got so many things on your resume, David. <laughs> that, um, there's op loads of options, right? And there's more TV being created now mm. than ever with streaming services. It creates a great opportunity. What is it that can we expect or are you looking for? I mean, I'd, I'd, this is my first film I'd ever done. So working in that medium was really fun for me and also aspects of it were a lot easier than than working on on a tv series and 
you know, having a beginning, middle and end and, yeah. and your script that's just all there and yeah. you can sort of, you know, work around that one script. There's, I mean, there's so much freedom in that and it's so much clearer as an actor, I think, to know mm. where you're going to end up in many ways. Um, there's also a joy in not knowing, but um, I think working in that medium for the first time was a learning experience and something that I definitely want to do more of. Um, so, yeah, I, I have a Netflix film that I think I'm going to film next year with a director called Matt Spicer. And, yeah, an exec producing a show called Exciting Times, which we're, well... I, I'm not writing the scripts, <laughs> but uh, yeah, a wonderful director and, and writer, Nisha Dolan, are, are writing the scripts now. So having that, you know, getting to see sort of the another aspect. I know David's produced a couple of things, but yeah, it's it's all new for me and um, quite interesting. It means you can explore that a bit. You can kind of yeah. find more yeah, niches exciting. that you can kind of tap into. Yeah, absolutely. Like so looking forward to that. Yeah, and I've just wrapped on a six-part of a BBC called Sherwood, written by James yes. Graham mm -hmm. with Leslie Manville. And, uh, yeah, that's great. That, and that's sort of, it's a, it's not a whodunit because we know who did it right at the start, so it's got a very different dynamic, crime drama, but it's really about the destruction of a community and uh, it has its roots in the miner strike of 84 So and set in Nottingham. So, yeah, is there a plot twist? Is there a plot twist there? There, is, there are many plot twists. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> well, though, thank you so much for chatting to us. That was brilliant. Thank pleasure. you so much. So good. Thank yeah. And good luck for everything next year. <laughs> Cheers. Big thank you to Phoebe Denever and David Morrissey. And I know you shouldn't comment on appearances, but they were looking very dapper. So glamorous. And what about David's voice? I know. Soothing. So soothing. I said to you after, didn't I? I was like, I feel like I need to capture that voice and have it on some form of like meditation audio before I go to sleep at night. It was so calming. No, it was a really good interview. And I really enjoyed hearing about their plot twist. I mean, perhaps maybe obvious with given the, the juggernaut series they've been on. But to hear about their experiences on those and then the aftermath is always, it's always interesting. Yeah, I think particularly Phoebe's with Bridgerton because that series really, you know, for a first time series, Massive. the word of mouth around it really picked up. And now she's just been catapulted you know, in her career. And this is her first film, which it was lovely to hear her talk about. Yes, The Colour Room is out on the 12th of November. And it was really nice to hear their perspective on it because there's a lot of details around these characters that you needed to kind of get their take on. Yeah, and I wanted to ask that question about when you're bringing to life someone who has already existed because there must be a bit of an added pressure to get do that justice. right. And do, do them justice. Yeah. But actually, like Phoebe said, you know, when there's been less, I suppose, in the public sphere about someone, it's easier to put your own stamp on it and to give it a bit of your own interpretation. And the conversation about fear, actually, which kind of ties in a little bit because yeah. Paris Cliff, you know, she does appear so fearless, but their own take on it as well, particularly with David, I thought that was really quite interesting. Yeah, but actually also the perception of failure because when Phoebe she came said, straight in, yeah. you know, well, how do you define failure? And it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually we set ourselves our own boundaries that we can then either succeed or fail within. So actually the concept of failure in itself, does it really exist, Tom? Does it exist? I mean, that's philosophical. This is changing. This, is, this, can't, this can't be called plot twist anymore. <laughs> to bring it back to a slightly more humorous <laughs> note, though, before we started chatting to them, 
I did have to giggle because they were talking about the fact that they were having some of Clarice Cliff's original work brought down for a premiere. Again. And we were just having a giggle being like, of all the times to trip over and accidentally fall into a table, you know, that when it's a five-figure sum piece of work, that is not the time to play the clumsy card. But, you know, it's work is so valuable, her stuff now. You know, real testament to her influence in that world. I mean, you could play a fantastic prank but i think you know we got what we expected in terms of the development of the characters though didn't we but you know what the film did watching her and her story you know that she's this pioneering ceramics figure but actually the backbone behind it the story and everything that she did to get to the position that she got to Mm. that's the empowerment that's the the thing you take away most well we finished the film didn't we and immediately i was in a google hole Straight eyes. Straight in a IMDb. <laughs> so if you've enjoyed hearing the story of Clarice Cliff and that has set your wheels in motion. We pottery wheel. Uh, then you can watch the colour room on now from the twelfth of November. And that's it for this week. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.